And if you ask me to define the word hoist, I know it means to like pull on stuff and make it go up, but I actually mentally have about three different images, like throw something over something, hoist up a bucket, like would be lifted up. Hoist the mainsail is to pull on a rope and actually lift the mainsail. So I'd actually have to look that up. Now he said mainsail, which is how sailors say mainsail. I knew what a mainsail was. It's the big one. I didn't know what a mainsail was. So I started looking around for something labeled mainsail. And then I was hoping I could figure out hoisting was by context. This meant that the command was not executed promptly, quickly, or efficiently, which is not what a captain expects of his sailors. So my father got immediately angry at me and started shouting at me, which then led to the point that I have no longer had any interest in boats whatsoever. I have never actually been on a boat really since. But you do run into people who buy into this. I have a coworker whose father is a pilot and therefore believes that she knows everything about flying airplanes. Now, I don't think she has a license. I don't think she's ever flown an airplane. I believe she probably has been in the cockpit of an airplane. She's seen all the shiny buttons. But she will talk about flights and airplanes as if she's an expert. And then you ask her, where does this deep knowledge come from? Or how does she have this authority? And she will say, my father is a pilot. But just like my father's a captain, I don't know anything about boats. I could not sail a boat or bring it in and dock it properly without messing it up because I have never done those things. I find this happens a lot with people whose parents know stuff. And this also happens a lot with boyfriends and girlfriends. I knew a woman who dated a guy who was like a, a trumpet player or something in a ska band. I actually forget. But the instant she started dating him, she then became an expert on music. She started telling everyone about music and things she knew about music and right music and wrong music and, and how things are done. And her ignorance came through because she obviously had never played an instrument. So these people don't deserve to be called out, but you should take a moment and sort of break check your head. Because the first question is, does that person know what they're talking about? The second question is, should I take them at their word? But I think for me, the important thing is now when I run across someone who doesn't know something, I don't think that's a negative thing. I don't treat them poorly for it, which I think a lot of people do. It certainly is the current state of the internet. If you don't know something, someone else will take that as an opportunity to insult you. But lack of all knowledge just means they haven't learned that thing that maybe you learned already. So it is sort of an opportunity for you to teach it to them. But I think more importantly you need to recognize that they probably know something you don't know and that exchange could be the most valuable result. Core question, why are people who are really good at martial arts so nice and more willing to avoid a street fight if they can? This is something I've found to be relatively true. Long-standing, high-level martial artists do tend to be very nice people. And I think that comes from the inherent confidence that that ability gives them. So they're not overcompensating. They're not trying too hard. They can just be themselves because it doesn't matter if you're bigger or stronger. They can probably beat your ass. So that doesn't intimidate them so they can relax in those kind of situations. And then also they've probably become good through the help of other people. So they understand the need or hopefully have gained the desire to help others as well. So teaching younger people who aren't as good, trying to inspire them to do better and trying to get other people into martial arts so that they can live the same life probably has become one of their, maybe not primary goals in life, but certainly they want to do it. So I don't teach judo in Japan. Honestly, the reason is my Japanese isn't good enough, but I help people out whenever I can. 
I try to show people moves. I try to actually show people how to beat me because a lot of the Japanese guys, they might be very physically strong and powerful. Maybe they're inexperienced. Maybe they're shorter than me. Those are two things you have to take into account. But because you fight people your own size, if you live in a country where everyone's basically the same size, that's not something you experience. So it's something you need to learn. And they always really appreciate it because I'm like, look, if you're going to fight a guy like me who's taller, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. And if they start doing it, they will be able to beat me. And that's a weird thing to do. I've talked about this before in the podcast is teach people how to beat you in a fight. But that's because I have the confidence to give them those skills because we're all working together. Now, there's a secondary thing where even when you win a fight, there is a very good chance you're still hurt. So I have had many occasions where I've had the conversation. I've walked into work and I'm limping or I can't get up quickly or I'm moaning a bit because I'm so sore. And they go, wow, what happened? And then, of course, it was judo and I had a really tough fight. I go, oh, my leg hurts, my back hurts, my shoulders hurt, something. I got really beat up last night. They go, oh, so you you lost. I go, no, I won, but it was such a tough fight that I'm now in really bad shape. Now extend that to a street fight where there's more unpredictability where there's more things you have less control over because there's no more rules. I'm fighting in a safe environment because there's rules. I know that I don't have to worry about certain things because they're not going to pull out a knife and stab me because no one's walking into the judo club with a knife. At least I hope. Even if you win a fight, that doesn't mean you walk away unscathed. So anyone who's had a really tough fight in a martial arts situation has felt that pain even if they won. So winning doesn't mean you walk away unhurt. So we, again, we have movie logic. We see the guy who wins. He's fought four guys. He's thrown them. He's cracked some ribs. He's punched a guy and knocked him out in one hit. And he fights four or five people and he isn't hurt at all. Doesn't even have scratches on his knuckles from punching a guy in the mouth. Honestly, impossible. If you get into a fight, it is very, very likely you'll get hurt. The videos you see on the internet where a guy does like a spin kick and he hits the other guy in the head and knocks him out in the first shot, that is on the internet and getting huge amount of views because it is unusual. It is not a normal scenario. It isn't the kind of thing that normally happens. It is unique. The more common scenario is you get some hits in, he actually gets some hits in or he starts, or he bites you or something, uh, and then you knock him out. You've had a chunk taken out of your leg or your, your ribs or something because he bit you. He may have a knife. So knowing how unpredictable those fights are, and even if you win, you could walk away hurt, honestly, seriously hurt, There is no benefit to it. I was talking to a friend last night as we walked home from judo and we were talking about John Wick. And I said, one of the things I would like to see is John Wick stop after like a big five minute fight and just sit down and catch his breath and then get up and move on again. Because that is hyper realistic to me. I have done judo. Judo tends to be three, four, five minute matches. In the practice, we tend to do three minute rounds and you just go again and again and again but you have to stop and catch your breath sometimes. John Wick fights, he's shooting guys, he's punching guys, he's throwing guys over and shooting them again, all that kind of stuff, all the great stuff you see in John Wick movies. And then he gets to sort of one of the mid scenes where they're actually changing from one, like the club to the alley outside or something. And there's no one around and he should just stop and go, okay, and then move on to the next fight. I would just like to see that because that would make him a little more human. And I could actually relate to that because I've been in that situation where you fight and fight and fight and you get tired and then you fight again. It takes it out of you. Even if you're winning, it is physically punishing. Now, the last factor is anyone who has fought for a long time to a significantly high level and has maintained that level over any amount of time will see a street fight as beneath them. 
I once had a guy who was about 6'5 or 6'6. He joined our company. He was in the training and I was the trainer. And he was not used to people not being intimidated by his size. I did not find him intimidating at all. And he had said a couple things to imply that he was really tough. I didn't care. Everyone else was a little nervous around him because he was a cagey guy. So of course, as we're talking more socially at times, we're taking breaks and they want to find out about my life. Judo comes up and I explain sort of my life and my situation. You've heard all that before on the podcast if you've listened to past episodes. This guy couldn't handle that everyone was kind of interested in me and my stories and he wasn't getting enough attention so he was standing at the other end of the room he goes we should go out in the street and fight now most people again would be intimidated by that they would be nervous they would be off put whereas because i did not find him intimidating i said well that's very beneath me because the first thing is we would both get arrested because we are on visas in Japan, so we would probably get arrested and be deported for fighting in the street almost immediately. So I didn't want that to happen. So then I said, come to the judo club, sign the insurance forms, and we'll do it. Now, I wasn't aggressive about it. I was very factual. And this was confusing to him. I don't think he'd ever experienced this before. Someone who was not afraid to fight him. But I saw a fight in the street as sort of something that, why would I bother doing that? Because I've spent my whole life training to fight other guys who do judo and stuff, guys who fight at the same level as me, guys who could test my skills. Now, I deep down inside knew that he was never going to accept this challenge because I didn't actually say it as a challenge. I said, if you want to do this, come to my judo club, we'll set a time. And I was very nice and polite about it, but clearly I was not off put by him or his size. And so he didn't know how to handle that. So he just went silent which was, again, what I was kind of expecting to happen. It would have been very interesting if he came to the judo club and fought because I could actually tell my teacher, this guy challenged me to a fight. We're going to fight here. Let's sign the insurance forms. And the insurance forms is a thing that puts people off as well. Because what are you signing insurance for? In case you get injured or die, you can't sue the other party. That's a very standard thing in almost all martial arts. You have to protect the club or the facility that you're practicing in. But the simple fact that I knew these were the things you had to do beforehand almost made it sound like I had done it before. I have not. I have never engaged in a fight that was outside of judo or judo rules in any real capacity. So yeah, the actual fighting in the street, I see that as something that would be beneath me in my years and years of training. It would be almost disrespectful to me to go do a fight in the street. Why are people who are really good at martial arts kind and avoid fights in the street? One, they have confidence. Two, they understand the reality of what fighting is. And three, they see street fighting as something as significantly beneath their years of effort. So a little while ago on Ninja News Japan, I talked about how The Avengers was not the number one movie in Japan when it was number one in every other major market. Avengers was number two. And the movie that had capped that top spot, that kept Avengers out of number one in Japan, was a Detective Conan movie. And that made me a little more interested in Detective Conan. What is it about Detective Conan that people find so appealing in Japan that they would actually displace Avengers when in every other major market, Avengers was number one? The basic premise of Detective Conan, which I may have talked about before because it's really, really weird, is that he was a detective. His name is Conan, so there's the Detective Conan part. That's almost self-evident. I don't really think I need to say that to you. But Detective Conan was an adult, a detective... And as he was investigating some kind of weird secret society, they shot him with a drug that made him a child. 
So then he became a child and decided to continue being a detective. So he still like investigates crimes. In fact, he goes on a lot of school trips and stuff where crimes happen, usually very large conspiracies. And he battles those evil people or tries to solve the crime. There's a lot of actual detecting in this. So they talk about like Batman being the greatest detective, but quite frankly, he doesn't do a lot of detecting most of the time. Most of the time, what he does is punch things. I'm on board with that, but I don't think that makes a good detective, if I'm being 100% honest. And so I think the idea is to put an adult, fully developed, very intelligent brain into a child's body, and then he can deal with some of the issues of being a child who is capable of solving crimes when maybe the adults around him are not, because he's supposed to be a genius detective, not just like an average one. But that got me thinking about this youth serum that had been created and employed upon him to make him a child. Because there's only two things that can happen. One, he stays a child forever, or two, he grows up like a normal child. So in the second scenario, he grows up, and so he's a child for X amount of years. So he looks like he's about eight or nine years old, and then he, in about 10, 15 years, he's a fully grown adult again. It's not a particularly effective deterrent because what it might be doing, again, this is a guess because I don't know how this technology works, is actually extending his lifespan giving him more time to track you down and punish you as the criminals. Because he's now got his whole youth back. And if he made mistakes in his youth, he could almost correct those or live a slightly different life and get more resources, uh, live a better life. I don't know if he has a bank account or anything because he must have had that stuff as an adult. Now that we're all on machines and stuff, he could still take out and put in money and invest in stuff. He now just has extra years to do that and build up a better resource to live off of. So what you've really done is given him a, an ironic gift. So you've made him young again in the hopes of making him ineffective. You maybe have given him time to train better so that he could be more effective when he returns to adulthood again. The first scenario, he remains a child essentially forever. So that begs the question, at what point do the people around him start to notice that he isn't aging, that he isn't getting older? So maybe internally he's aging, so his heart is getting older, so he will die in a regular lifespan. He'll die when he turns to, let's say, 80-something years old. But he'll still look like a child people would notice sooner or later. So sooner or later, he's going to have to come up with some sort of explanation as to why he's not aging and tell the people around him because it's the people around him who are going to notice like, hey, you were eight years old five years ago. Why don't you look like a teenager yet? You were eight years old 10 years ago. Why are you still only three feet tall? So the secret will reveal itself that way if that's the scenario. It's never been explained within the show because within the show, much like many cartoons like The Simpsons and stuff, the characters don't age. He's a child forever and the adults around him are adults forever and they don't have birthdays and they don't grow older. And that's fine. This is a fiction and that's their universe. And they want to keep this premise up so they can use it in other episodes down the line. Because The Simpsons, I believe, has been on for about 30 some years. None of the kids are 35, 36 years old yet. They're all still whatever age they're supposed to be. So just a bit of insight into sort of Japanese sensibility where an adult brain in a child's body is a more appealing enterprise than the Avengers saving the universe. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, 
a cast or go to velocipeter.com slash podcast. Would maybe be the most val would maybe be he's a full adult full fully grown adult. He's a fully grown adult 